0: The following audio is from Christ Presbyterian Church in Nashville, Tennessee, where our mission is to follow Christ in his mission of loving people, places, and things to life. For more information about Christ Presbyterian Church, please visit ChristPres.org.
1: Our scripture reading today is from Exodus 5, 1-23. Afterward, Moses and Aaron went and said to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Let my people go that they may hold a feast to me in the wilderness. But Pharaoh said, Who is the Lord that I should obey his voice and let Israel go? I do not know the Lord, and moreover, I will not let Israel go. Then they said, The God of the Hebrews has met with us. Please let us go out a three days journey into the wilderness that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God, lest he fall upon us with pestilence or with the sword. But the king of Egypt said to them, Moses and Aaron, why do you take the people away from their work? Therefore they cry, let us go and offer sacrifice to our God. Let heavier work be laid on the men, that they may labor at it and pay no regard to lying words. So the taskmasters and the foremen of the people went out and said to the people, thus says Pharaoh, I will not give you straw. Go and get the straw yourselves wherever you can find it, but your work will not be reduced in the least. So the people were scattered throughout all the land of Egypt to gather stubble for straw. The taskmasters were urgent, saying, Complete your work, your daily task, each day, as when there was straw. And the foremen of the people of Israel, whom Pharaoh's taskmasters had set over them, were beaten and were asked, Why have you not done all your task of making bricks today and yesterday as in the past? Then the foremen of the people of Israel came and cried to Pharaoh, Why do you treat your servants like this? No straw is given to your servants, yet they say to us, Make bricks, and behold, Your servants are beaten, but the fault is in your own people. But he said, you are idle. You are idle. That is why you say, let us go and sacrifice to the Lord. Go now and work. No straw will be given to you, but you must still deliver the same number of bricks. The foremen of the people of Israel saw that they were in trouble when they said, you shall by no means reduce your number of bricks, your daily task each day. They met Moses and Aaron who were waiting for them. As they came out from Pharaoh and they said to them, the Lord look on you and judge because you had made us stink in the sight of Pharaoh and his servants and have put the sword in their hands to kill us. Then Moses turned to the Lord and said, "O Lord, why have you done evil to this people? Why did you ever send me? For since I have came to Pharaoh to speak in your name, he has done evil to his people and you have not delivered your people at all. This is the word of our Lord. Amen. Thanks be to God.
0: All right, thank you, Price, for reading that lengthy passage this morning. We, um, we looked at this and we said, can we make that passage a little bit shorter? And I just didn't want to because it's such a complete narrative, and, uh, and it's one that I, I, I want to, <laughs> we're going to dive a little deep this morning, okay, into, into uh, a thread that runs throughout Scripture, because this is a passage where I think many of us can relate to being in a place in our lives where things are just not unfolding the way that we think they should be. They're not unfolding in a way that it, that it just seems like, it seems to us that it should be so obvious to God that this is not the way things are supposed to go, and we wonder just how, how is he missing what is so evident to us. We're namers, as people we're namers. It's one of the first things that human beings ever did when God made Adam and he put him in the garden he told him to what? He told him to name uh, the creatures and we do this. We do this, we give names and we take names. Every one of us takes names upon ourselves and we wear them throughout our entire lives. The names we're given when we're born, nicknames, names that refer to qualities that we have. We take some names to our great joy, other names to our deep, deep sorrow. And we all have a sense of who we are that may or may not be accurate. Our sense of who we are may or may not actually be accurate but we believe it and we live according to it and we wear certain names like costumes. And some names we wear like costumes that we know don't fit, but we can't bring ourselves to strip them off. Names that are spoken in anger by an adult when we're a child. Or names associated with failures in our lives. Or names measuring how we compare. We just have had a season where there, there are award shows. Do you remember the award ceremonies in high school and middle school where they there'd be an element of secret Uh, secretness to them, where where they would tell you, hey, there's an award show, we want you to come to it, but you don't know if you're gonna win anything or not. uh, (laughs) I was the kid who, I was average. I was an average kid in every way. Um, I I, I was a solid B student. And we would go to the award shows, and I would sit there, and I would think, "I, I wonder if my teachers all just noticed something particularly special about me and I'm going to find out about it in the next 30 minutes. Have any of you ever experienced that feeling? I know I can't be alone in that. We do this, right? We think, we think okay, okay, somebody, somebody just tell me who I am. We take names that are good. We take names that are right, things that, that, that help us understand our worth. But one of the things that God tells us in Scripture is that we're called to take His name. We're called to regard ourselves as his people, to know ourselves as him. So when he says in the Ten Commandments, and we'll get to this later in the summer when we go through our series on the Ten Commandments, when he says, you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, it's because we are to take the name of the Lord, just not in vain, but we are to take it. And that's what today's text is all about. Long before the events that occurred in today's passage happened, God made a covenant with his people. He made a covenant with Israel's forefather, Abraham, and what he promised him, we're going to do a little Bible history, okay, this morning, what he promised him is that he would make Abraham into a great nation, and that Abraham's descendants would be God's people. They'd be God's people. And they would be his people, and he would be their God, and that would be forever forever. And this was going to then be Israel's defining identity, that they were God's people. Before they were anything else, that's who they were. And God would give them their name. And he would establish their place in the world and their future, and he would never leave them. And this is the promise that Christians still embrace, is that God is a covenant-keeping, a covenant-making and a covenant-keeping God. When God's people were enslaved in Egypt, when they were there and they were building Pharaoh's kingdom, God met Moses in the form of a burning bush. We talked about this last week. And one of the things he said is he said, "I have seen the misery of who, of my people in Egypt." and I have come to rescue them. So I'm sending you, he said to Moses, I'm sending you to Pharaoh to bring my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. God would rescue them, and Moses obeyed. He did what God told him to do. He went to the Israelites, he went to Pharaoh, we read it in the passage, he explained to them, look, it's time for you to let Israel go, but here's what happened. When he did this, he brought his own people into a world of trouble. A world of trouble. That's why I didn't want to shorten the passage. I wanted us to see it unfolding there. When Moses told Pharaoh, the God of Israel says, let my people go, Pharaoh looked at him and said, who? I don't know this God of yours. I certainly don't fear him. And I'm not going to let Israel go. And Moses persisted. He said, no, you have to let them go. Until Pharaoh made his position abundantly clear. And what he said is this He says, Why are you taking my slaves away from their work? Get back to your burden. See, Pharaoh's strength had come from having an enslaved workforce. And the greater they made his kingdom, the more oppressed they became under his rule. And the last thing he wanted was for his labor force to have the slightest hint that they could maybe one day be set free. He couldn't afford for them to even entertain that notion. And so what he did is he set in motion a plan to not just make their work harder, but to break their spirit. Pharaoh decided he needed to crush their spirit, and put down any thought of insurrection that they may have. And so he issued this edict to the slave drivers. Don't, don't give them any more straw. Make them make the same amount of bricks, but don't provide for them the straw. Make them add that to the list of things that they do in order to accomplish their task. And then he said, they're lazy, they're lazy, so work them harder and don't pay any attention to Moses. If his workforce didn't have enough to do, he would just remedy that. And so this starts to spiral out of control. Because inevitably what happened is the Israelites failed to make their quota, and when they did, they were beaten, and they realized quickly that they were in trouble, and so they went to Moses and they blamed him. And they say, "May God judge you, because you have made us, you've made us a stench to Pharaoh. And his officials and you've put a sword in his hand to kill us." And so what did Moses do? Moses then turned and went to God, and he said, what's wrong with you? He said, why have you brought, why have you brought trouble upon this people? Is this why you sent me? Ever since I went to Pharaoh to speak in your name, he has brought trouble on this people. And then he says, and you haven't rescued them at all. Which is what God said he was going to do, right? I have heard their misery, and I'm going to rescue them. And Moses says, you've you failed. You haven't rescued them. Let's just stop there for a second. Surely, you've been there. Surely, you've been in a place where you just see something just kind of disintegrating. And you just think, God, what are you even thinking right now? Here's what happened. Israel is mad at Moses, Egypt's mad at Israel, Israel's mad at Moses, Moses is mad at God. Are there places in your life where God has failed you in such a way that it's just so plain to you what he should have done and it doesn't even seem to have occurred to him? Have you ever demanded that God give an account of himself to you? Where are you doing that even right now? I do it. I do it. Some of the best gifts that God has ever given me have come in the form of shattered plans and the pain that goes with it. I ache and I doubt and I question and I complain. And I raise a defiant fist to the Lord and say, It wasn't supposed to be this way and it's your fault for this. God gave Moses a job, one that had the appearance of greatness. Moses was going into this thinking, I'm going to go, but really God's going to be the force of power behind me, and he's going to lead his people out of slavery, and I get to play a role in it. But as far as God's people were concerned, it was an ill-conceived plan, and now it's royally backfiring, and it's leaving the Israelites even more abused than before Moses even came, and now he is even more disreputable than when he started, and everybody's upset, Everybody. Before Moses came along, things weren't great, but they were working. But now Israel has become a stench to Pharaoh, and Moses is accusing God of failing them all. And so he objects and he accuses God of failing to rescue his people. You haven't rescued them at all. And then God responds. What does he say? What he doesn't do is offer a mea culpa. He doesn't say, yeah, sorry about that. That one kind of spun out of control for a second. I'll get things back on track, my bad. That's not what he says. It's not even close to what he says. In fact, what he does is this, he gives this response. He says to Moses, after Moses says, you haven't rescued your people at all. He says, I am the Lord. I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob as God Almighty, but my name, the Lord, I did not make myself known to them, but I did to you. And I also established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan, the land in which they lived as sojourners. Moreover, I've heard the groaning of the people of Israel whom the Egyptians hold as slaves. I've remembered my covenant. Say then to the people of Israel, I am the Lord and I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians, and I will deliver you from slavery to them, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and great acts of judgment. I will take you to be my people, and I will be your God, and you shall know that I am the Lord your God, who brought you out from under the burden of the Egyptians. I will bring you into the land that I swore to give to Abraham and to Isaac and to Jacob, and I will give it to you as a possession. I am the Lord. God had not forgotten his promises. Also, here's a good reminder that you can't just throw out rhetorical questions to God. He has an answer, and it's usually going to be the same answer that he started with. God hadn't forgotten his promises, nor had he changed them. In fact, in his response to Moses, he doubles down. Right? To be faithful. And he makes this unequivocal declaration that nothing that has happened is changing his plan at all. There are two things we have to understand about this. About this response from God. The first is that God assures Moses he is very aware of what life in Egypt is like and that he is closer to them than they know. I have heard your groanings. I have revealed myself to you in deeper ways than I did to Abraham. God's not unaware of their misery, nor is He unmoved by it. He's not w- unaware of your misery, nor is He unmoved by it. He has shown Himself to them in ways that are more clear than any other generation up to this point. He is aware. The second thing is God loads His response to Moses here with more promises, nine of them, to be exact. In this passage that I just read, right after Moses accuses him of failing. But God doesn't just stack up more promises, He tells them why they can and must trust Him. He says, I will take you to be my people and I will be your God. And He gives us and them a basis for why we should trust this. He says, I have remembered my covenant, I've remembered my covenant. I will bring you into the land that I swore to give to Abraham and to Isaac and to Jacob. God will keep his promises, his promises to them and his promises to us because of a covenant that he established with Abraham over 400 years before the Israelites in Egypt in this passage and many more millennia for us. His faithfulness rests on a promise he made to people who came before them. Now, we live in a pretty individualized culture where and and I remember growing up and there's value in this where the emphasis for, for understanding what it means to be a Christian was it's not a religion but it's a relationship right you have a relationship with Jesus you have a personal relationship with Jesus and that's a good thing Where it's problematic is that when our definition of Christianity is All it is is a personal relationship with Jesus, because it's not. It's actually an ancient covenant relationship that God established with his people, of which I'm a part, but did generations ago in a place on the other side of the globe from where I sit in a language that I don't speak. I am the recipient of promises that run through the history of the world. So when I'm going through something and I'm struggling and I'm wondering where God is and it seems like he's far away, it isn't like my relationship with God began the day that I first prayed a prayer of confession. My relationship with God is somehow in a way that's too mysterious for me to understand rooted in something before time even began. That's how God works and he's the one who keeps this. So that's what he does here. He makes all these promises. He explains all these things. What does God's covenant with Abraham have to do with Israel's suffering in Egypt? Let me give you a brief history lesson of covenant. Are you still with me? I'm kind of going a million miles an hour. I'm giving giving you about 30% more words in this sermon in about the same amount of time. But we're we're, we're in it. All right, let's talk about what a covenant is briefly because we use this language. God's a covenant-keeping God. A covenant was a thing. It was a real, it was a a kind of agreement. Uh, It was an agreement between two parties, usually a stronger party and a weaker party, offering protection and provision in exchange for loyalty and service. And so the Hebrew word for covenant, berit, literally means a cutting. And so the reason a covenant is called a cutting is because the agreement would usually include a ceremony where an offering would be made. An offering would actually be cut in half, and then the Parties in the covenant, in the ceremony, would both walk through the pieces of the covenant as a way of saying, may the same thing happen to me if I fail to hold up my part of the covenant. Right? And so that was kind of part of the solemnity of it. It was so solemn that the promise was made on the very collateral of the covenant takers' lives. So it's not, a, it's not a weak promise, it's a life or death promise. And so God, in Genesis 15, cut a covenant with Abraham to make him into a great nation and to take his descendants as his own people forever. And at that time, Abraham had no descendants. He had nothing to bring to the covenant, nothing. But God said, count the stars, so shall your offspring be, I promise it, and the world will know you as mine. And then he said, I give you my name. I give you my name. And when God cut his covenant with Abraham in Genesis 15, he had Abraham prepare the sacrifice. And then Abraham waited for God to show up so that they could ratify the covenant. But when they did, God alone was the one to pass through the pieces of the covenant. Abraham didn't. God told Abraham to stay and he passed through the pieces of the sacrifice alone. Do you see what's so significant about that? God is saying, I alone will uphold this covenant. I'm the one who will keep it. I'm the one who will preserve it. Abraham did not, only God. The stronger party took the sole responsibility for preserving the covenant oath. It's a beautiful foreshadowing of the work of Christ to come that God ratified his covenant with his people by swearing by his own name. That when he passed between the pieces of the offering, he vowed, may this happen to me if I don't keep my promise to you. For God remaining faithful to Abraham's descendants, here's the point. For God remaining faithful to Abraham's descendants was not an obligation that rested on Abraham's descendants. It was an obligation that rested on him. He was the one who was going to do that. So one of the details That God told Abraham when he did that, when he established that covenant, is he said this. He said, for 400 years, Abraham, your descendants are going to be strangers in a country that is not their own, and they're going to be enslaved and mistreated there. This is Genesis 15, verses 13 to 14, if you want to look it up, because it is so specific to what's happening here. He says, they'll be enslaved and mistreated there, but I will punish the nation they serve as slaves, and afterward, they will come out with great possession. Okay, covenant history lesson over. Now we fast forward to Moses, the passage that we're in. 400 years after Abraham, his descendants are just that. They're enslaved, they're being mistreated. God's raising up Moses to lead them out into the land that he promised for an inheritance to Abraham and to his descendants. Why? Because those people, The people of Israel belong to God. They belong to God. They are his by covenant oath. He has given them his name and has promised to keep them forever. And so what looked like unfaithfulness to Moses and the people of Israel was actually God keeping his word. The God of the covenant is setting wheels in motion to deliver his people from their slavery. And guess what? They're furious about it. They're furious about it. And their problem is one that we share. And that is they horribly underestimated God's view of who they were. What do I mean by that? They couldn't see that God had given them anything of value, but he had. He had given them his name and he promised them a land of their own where he would reign as their king over them and all they needed to do was follow him out of Egypt. And what did they want? Instead, straw. They wanted straw. Okay. Now we're going to pull all that together as we conclude. All right? When the slave drivers took away Israel's straw, that was as much as they were willing to take from Moses. Why? Because during their time in Egypt, they had taken a name. They had taken a name. They took the name slave. And they didn't take it in vain. They took it in earnest. That's who they were. They forgot that they bore the name of God. All they wanted at this point was for God to make their slavery to the Egyptians as tolerable as possible. That's it. But they weren't Pharaoh's slaves. They weren't you're not either you're not either they weren't his slaves they weren't his labor force they were god's people they were god's people and this they had forgotten have you ever forgotten what it means to bear god's name maybe you don't think much about it as a christian maybe you think christianity is just a kind of a system of ceremonies that i observe not to god it's not it's not to god Do you see much connection between the daily affairs of your life and belonging to God? Or are you like the Israelites where what you want most from God is for him to make your slavery to the kingdoms of this world as tolerable as it can possibly be so you can just get through it? Are there places in your life where your expectation is that God is going to then get behind your broken systems or broken relationships and somehow make them work a little bit? And that then this is how you test whether he's good. I mean, gosh, if I'm going to God and saying, I've got this broken way of thinking or this broken relationship, and all I really want from you is for you to make this broken thing function for me in the way that my heart so desires, and God doesn't do that, we turn on him and say, You're failing me and you're not good. When maybe the most poisonous, toxic thing he could do is allow that thing to continue. There is no weaker religion than the one where your God exists to serve you. You don't need that God. It fosters disillusionment with the church. It places conditions on our willingness to believe. It fosters distrust of his command by telling us really the same lie that the serpent told Adam and Eve in the the garden, God is holding out on you. What God wants is to take us out from under the yoke of slavery to a place where we only have one master, and that is him. And he's calling us to radical freedom. But we get real used to being enslaved. And so, because of that, sometimes what he does is he takes away our straw. He does. And we hate it when he does because he's taking away the things that make our bondage to this world Efficient. We actually begin to believe that being a slave is the best way to live simply because it's the easiest. What is your straw? What is the fiber, you know, that's holding your bondage to the world in place? Is it a lifestyle that you're chasing? Is it the image of a perfect family? Is it success, a career? Is it a passion or a mistress that is buried buried somehow deep in the recesses of your heart? How hard is it for us to conceive of freedom? God doesn't want us to be slaves. He doesn't want us to be slaves of this world. Galatians says this, because you are sons, God has sent the Spirit of his Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father, so you are no longer a slave, but, if a, but a son, and if a son, then an heir through God. Christians have been given a name. We're heirs of God, nothing less than that. And so we have to take that name with everything that we have and everything that we are. Don't take it in vain, but take it. Take that name. You are an heir with Christ. You are the beloved of God, kept for Jesus Christ. You're God's chosen ones, holy and dearly loved. You're reconciled to God. He has put eternity in your heart and has indelibly written your name in his book of life. And we are all this by way of a covenant cut in the blood of Christ, established with Abraham in Genesis 15. It's been going on for a long time. And it is perfectly fulfilled through the death of his Son, eternally binding us to God through his life. Take the name of Christ as your name, as the most important name you could be known by, as the name you will be known by in eternity, Christ's beloved. That's the name we've been given. Take the name of Christ because God has made you his own through him. And in that process, may God take away our straw. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your promise to us, I thank you for your word, I thank you for the way that you work in the lives of your people over time, the reminder even from this passage that the slaves in Egypt were not entering into a relationship with you that was brand new but was millennia old, that you had, that was was around for 400 years and more where you had made a covenant and you were still keeping that covenant. Forgive us for the ways that we take lesser names as our supreme identity, for the ways that we, that we own names that are given to us that, that do violence to our souls. Uh, Lord, we thank you for the mercy and the grace that is ours in Christ and the freedom that is there. May you teach us what it means to take your name, to take it with everything that we have and everything that we are, not in vain but in earnest, and to know That that's where our eternity rests and is secure as in being heirs with you. And we pray this in your matchless name. Amen. Amen.